Section 28 of the Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stacy Cologne. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Mary of Scotland, Part 2. Francis, notwithstanding his feeble constitution and his title of the little to distinguish him invidiously from Francis the Great, entered on his duties with much energy, but his health declined, and after a reign of seventeen months he died, expressing to the last his love for Mary. She had already, the same year, mourned the death of her mother, the Regent of Scotland, whose life was wearied out in vain attempts to crush the Reformation in that land, and now she was an orphan, and suddenly a widow, and a stranger in the beloved country of her adoption, her education, her short reign. Catherine triumphantly resumed her power as guardian of the new king, Francis's brother, and banished Mary's uncles from their influential stations at court. The Queen of Scots retired to a private country residence, and there relieved her sorrow for her lost husband, in tears or in sweet poetry composed to his memory. Monarch still of her native mountains and valleys, and only eighteen years of age, her hand was sought by princes and kings, but she would entertain none of their offers until she had decided her course of life. This was too apparent to be doubted. Her brother Lord James, on behalf of the Protestants, and John Leslie, in the interest of the Catholics, came from Scotland to secure her favor for their respective parties, and to hasten her return to the home of her infancy. To each of the delegates she replied in a reserved and prudent manner, a characteristic that should have weight in judging her of her subsequent alleged intimacy with the notorious Earl of Bothwell, who it is noteworthy at this period came to France with other noblemen to greet their sovereign. Previous to embarking, Mary, as the custom was, sent word to Elizabeth of England, asking permission to pass through her dominions. Elizabeth replied through her ambassador that she would give a pass only on condition that Mary would no more refuse to sign the rejected article of a former treaty, which was a relinquishment of all claim to the English crown. Mary's refusal of this repeated demand, as well as her reply to other messages touching her religious position, are preserved at full length, and are beautiful exhibitions of gentleness and candor, on the one hand firmness, dignity, and intelligence on the other. These answers added to the personal charms and Catholic predilections of the one who uttered them so incensed the homely, bitter, and ambitious spinster who wore the British diadem, that she began anew to excite the Scots against their sovereign and her own cousin, and sent out a fleet ostensibly to capture pirates, but really to intercept and seize that sovereign and relative on her voyage home. In August 1561, she set sail from France, having lingered for months to wean her heart, if possible, from that sunny land and to overcome her very natural dread of the country of her parents' past and her own anticipated trials. The French court accompanied her to Calais, the port of departure. Catherine, forgetting her jealousies, took an affectionate leave of her sad daughter-in-law and a few noblemen connections and literary men set sail with her who had been the light of the palace the pride of blood and the theme of song two historians and a poet chatelot afterwards a miserable actor in this narrative were of the company as mary's ships weighed anchor another in an attempt to make the port was wrecked before her weeping eyes and declared by her to be an evil omen to the last moment of twilight she sat on deck gazing in steadfast despair at the home of her childhood and the kingdom of her splendid nuptials 
Tears fell unceasingly from her, and her lips constantly murmured, Farewell, France. Farewell, my beloved country. When the night hid the shore, she gave way to louder lamentation, exclaiming, The darkness now brooding over France is like that in my heart. And then refusing to enter the cabin, she slept on deck, awaiting the dawn's earliest light when her attendants had promised to wake her. A heavy fog delayed the vessels, and at morning she saw again the dear fading hills, and wept freshly, saying, Farewell, beloved France. I shall never, never see you more. On the voyage she composed a famous song, which is desecrated by any attempt to translate it into English verse, and is literally this, Adieu, pleasant land of France, O my country the most dear, which nourished my infancy, Adieu, France. Adieu, my happy days. The ship which sunders my friendships has only a part of me. One part remains with thee. That is thine. I trust it to thy affection. And for this do thou remember the other. The sweetness of the French words and rhymes, as in the Poule Ma Patrie, of the Marseille hymn, the very prepositions to an English ear, give the language a mournful effect. The young poet, Ellsworth, exquisitely conveys the spirit of the scene, without reference to the words of the original song in these lines. Wooed in the May day of my prime, and won by love to warmer earth, how can I seek in Scotia's clime, again alone a sullen hearth? But France is now for other eyes, and unto me are other skies. Oh, never shall a ship convey a sadder wanderer away. Behind the shore, distinct and bright, extends a farewell arm to me. Before me is the drooping light, the sunset and the misty sea. And thus in gloom and doubt decays to me the light of glorious days. When love to France with Francis flew, adieu, adieu, ami, adieu. The ships propelled by sails or oars according as the wind blew or not and built with high prows and sterns like the ancient galleys, reached Scotland August twentieth, 1561. On the way, a heavy mist alone prevented a capture by the English cruisers, who, as it was, found and seized one of the vessels containing Mary's furniture. A dense fog, like that which shrouded the French coast, and likewise interpreted as an evil sign by the Queen, misled her mariners so that they were nearly wrecked on the rocks of the Scottish shore. The disheartened Mary declared that she had no wish to escape wreck, or the chains of English imprisonment, so cheerless seemed her future residence in the stern land of her fathers. The voyage had been conducted with enough secrecy to surprise the Scots by the sudden arrival of their admired Queen. They were wholly unprepared to do fitting honor to the occasion, but were delighted with the return of their renowned ruler, especially with the fact that she so trusted them as to appear with no armed escort. Forthwith, the population of Edinburgh arrayed themselves according to their trades along the road to the port of Leith, and horses poor in breed and array compared with the superb ones Mary had been accustomed to see were brought to receive the royal party. Shouts of applause rent the air, bonfires and illuminations shone everywhere, and after the newcomers had been established in Holyrood Palace, all the musicians in the city made the whole night hideous with inharmonious sounds, among which a party of covenanters, too strict to play on profane instruments, and too loyal to be silent, mingled their loud hymns. Knox, the great yet violent reformer, records that, so soon as ever her French felix, fiddlers, and others of that kind got the house alone, there might be seen skipping not very comely for honest women. 
Her common talk was in secret, that she saw nothing in Scotland but gravity, which was altogether repugnant to her nature, for she was brought up in joyeux cité. The intolerance which the reformers in those times had learned from the papists themselves was singly illustrated the next Sunday after Mary's arrival. She had announced her intention to be present at High Mass in the chapel of Holyrood House. This ceremony the Protestants had forbidden throughout the realm, and now they assembled in great numbers and would have rushed into the assembly to expel the priests, had not Lord James himself, a Protestant, stood at the door and quieted the tumult. On the next Sunday Knox thundered from his pulpit against the idolatries of Rome, but he himself had not become so enlightened as to inveigh also against the grand banquet given on the same holy day by the city to the queen at Edinburgh Castle, on her way to which she was grieved, as on many other occasions, by public exhibitions and ridicule of her religion. It speaks volumes in her praise that she manifested through all her life a liberality and moderation quite in contrast with the spirit of all religious parties in that age. She conceded so far indeed as to invite into her presence the great reformer, who had not concealed his opposition to her, and though in his mistaken conscientiousness, to use the most charitable word, he uttered disrespectful and indelicate language in her ears, she was no less calm and forbearing than shrewd and ready in her replies. This scene, as well as the mob at Holyrood Chapel, has been worthily painted by American artists, Leutz and Rothermel. The Privy Council soon formed was made up of the great earls of both parties, and whose musical names, as handed down in their proud titles, are familiar to all readers of Scottish history and poetry. Lord James, who is now made Earl of Mar and afterwards Earl of Murray, a handsome, stern, sagacious man of thirty-one years, stood highest in the government, and exerted the most influence over the Queen on the one hand, and the new church on the other. He and others in power are accused of paying deference to the secret plottings of Elizabeth of England, who thus made trouble for Mary unceasingly, but could not turn that tide of popular admiration for her person, not her faith, which followed her everywhere. She journeyed about this time with her lords and ladies to the palace of Linlithgow and Stirling Castle. The scenes of her infancy and to other palaces among them Falkland, where her father had died. At Stirling she had a narrow escape from death, her bed having caught fire from a candle, and at Perth she fainted at the shocking means taken by the crowd to show that their enthusiastic loyalty did not imply any complacency toward her belief. The tour was made on horseback, there being but one wheeled vehicle in the realm, a chariot brought from England by Mary's grandmother, which would have been useless without better roads than there were than anywhere to be found. On her return to the capital, the young queen, still in her nineteenth year, was further provoked by a city proclamation, classing the papist clergy with outcasts of society, and expelling them from the town, under pain of carting through the town, burning on the cheek, and perpetual banishment. The French nobles and courtiers who had accompanied Mary to Scotland were quite disgusted by all these savage proceedings as they deemed them, and one after another left the country. Many suitors now sent their envoys to propose a marriage with the royal widow. Among them were Don Carlos of Spain, Archduke Charles of Austria, the King of Sweden, the Duke of Ferreira, and the Prince of Conde. Two Scotsmen of rank added themselves to these, the Earl of Aden, 
the partly insane son of the regent of that name in Mary's infancy, and Sir John Gordon, a man of noble appearance, and the second son of Earl Huntley, who was leader of the Romish army. There is no evidence that she favored the addresses of the latter, the former she certainly disliked, and all the more on account of a report that he had conspired to seize the queen and carry her to Dumbarton Castle, whereby great alarm was excited at Holyrood. It was a turbulent period, and no sooner had this fear been allayed than a party of base noblemen led by Bothwell assaulted the horse of a merchant, whose daughter was supposed to be intimate with Auden. The offense was repeated notwithstanding the queen's rebuke. A great mob was occasioned, which was dispersed and Bothwell disgraced by the court. A more serious disturbance followed on the heels of this. The Earl of Auden, through timidity or remorse, disclosed a plot of himself, his father, together with Bothwell, Huntley, and his son Lord Gordon, to shoot Lord James while hunting with the Queen. The motive was alleged to be a fear that the royal heirship of the Hamiltons, of which family was Auden, would be set aside, and a desire to give the Catholics greater influence in the government. Whether the story of the half-crazy Auden were wholly true or not, he and Bothwell were arrested. But inasmuch as so many of rank are implicated and so little proof could be found against them, the Queen was contented to take possession of Dumbarton and hold Bothwell in prison. From this he escaped and remained abroad two years. No man is either wholly an angel or a demon, and this plausible attempt at his very life may explain something of the young Lord James's subsequent wicked, merciless, and successful scheme to extinguish Huntley a scheme strangely prefaced by the sumptuous festivities and humanizing joys of his own marriage with a daughter of the Earl of Marshall. This occurred in February 1562. In August, the iniquitous plan was executed. The Earl of Huntley was the most powerful baron in the north of Scotland. He had been a devoted and honored friend of Mary's father and mother, and to the last breath evinced himself a high-minded and faithful subject to herself. But Lord James, who had already affected the downfall of the Hamiltons and others who stood in the way of his unscrupulous ambition, was determined to ruin the Earl, and the Protestants generally, from less personal motives, had long wished such a result. Lord James was in reality king, and Mary his deceived instrument. From her he had secured the Earldom of Mar, the benefits of which had hitherto accrued to Huntley and now he privately obtained a grant of the revenues and title of the earldom of Murray, which were decreed for a term of years to the family of Huntley. The first step was sufficiently exasperating to the old northern baron, who did not suspect that such a second step had been taken. But an affray brought on by the question of this latter earldom happened between two members of the family in the streets of Edinburgh. This gave occasion to James to persecute one of the actors in the affray. Sir John Gordon, and thus offended his father, Earl Huntley, still more deeply. He next prevailed on the Queen to make a tour through her dominions, including the estates of the Earl, and there he sought both to alarm her with the falsely reported treason of Huntley, and to so beard the lion in his den, by slights and injuries for which Mary should seem responsible, that he would be driven to rebellion. The Earl and his heroic wife in various ways proved their loyalty, but he was at last forced to an unequal encounter with James's troops, and nobly refused to fly, was taken and fell dead from his horse, so great was his indignant grief at the manifest overthrow of himself and his ancient house. The faithful, brave heart of the old man was broken, and he was no more. 
Yet James, now openly Earl of Murray, pursued his unrelenting ambition and vengeance. He procured the death warrant of the son, John Gordon, who was beheaded before the Queen's eyes. She wept and fainted as the axe descended on her former admired suitor, against whom history writes no blame. The other son she would not condemn to death, though he would have fallen a victim had not a forged death warrant prepared by James, Earl of Murray, been detected in season. He lived to recover the castles and estates of his father, which were now, by all this triumphant course of villainy, in the hands of Murray and his adherents. Mary is to be blamed only as a woman too honest to suspect so stupendous plots, and as one unfortunate in her period and position. Perhaps she failed to assert her better discernment and feelings. She had as much intelligence and tenderness as she had that manly courage which led her to scorn all supposed danger, and on the same infernal expedition to regret that she was not a man to know what life it was to lie all night in the fields, or to walk upon the causeway, with a jack and knapsack, a Glasgow buckler, and a broadsword. But she was deluded by the seeming austere integrity of her half-brother, this Lord James, Earl of Murray. Nor was it her only misfortune to blindly aid his aspiring designs. She was thus also exposing herself to the machinations of Queen Elizabeth, with whom Murray maintained a most detestable and traitorous understanding. Evidently, he would have stopped short of nothing between himself and his sister's crown, and possibly he made his reckless course a matter of piety for the same papacy which he opposed had taught him, as it has taught others in all times, the satanic doctrine that the end sanctifies the means. After these exciting scenes, two years of peace to Mary and her kingdom ensued. Her quiet was, however, invaded by the presumption of a French poet of fortune and family, Chatelard, who was one of her numerous escorts to Scotland, and who now went thither again to urge the suit of his patron, the Duke of Danville. He was pleasing, accomplished, and a grand-nephew of Chevalier Bayard. The queen, being fond of poetry, and not averse to the customary glowing compliments of courtiers, received his laudatory effusions with favor, and even replied to them in verse. In this she was no doubt culpable, she could have gratified and encouraged his poetic nature, and yet have kept him at a suitable distance, until the danger or safety of his temperament was fully apparent. Her whole life was a training to discretion, while his vocation was to give free flow to feeling and impulse. He introduced himself into her bedchamber, was discovered and ejected with a severe rebuke, but soon after repeated the offence, when Mary called Murray to her assistance, and Chatelard was seized tried, and executed. On the scaffold, he looked toward her window and exclaimed, Farewell, loveliest and most cruel princess whom the world contains. Nothing but a blind zeal, or mere malignity, can accuse the queen of more than imprudence in this sad affair. Chotela merited his fate. During these two years of peace, Knox also continued to annoy Mary by his irritating personalities and preaching his seditious opposition, and his bitter remarks when admitted to her presence. For the most part, he may have acted from a mistaken sense of duty, but he too often exhibited the strange mixture of artfulness with conscientiousness, peculiar to his nation, to be set down as a blundering zealot, much as to be pardoned to his times, yet, in the queen herself, he had an example of calm charity even in that day of persecution. Mary endeavored to conciliate him by gentle words, 
Nevertheless, after she had opened her first parliament with a befitting display of royalty, he and his brethren denounced in public the superfluity of clothes and vanity of their sovereign and her ladies. And Knox boldly attacked her governmental acts, because they were not in form, as well as substance, what he desired. Called to an interview with her, he threw her into excessive weeping by his blunt severity until she could abide his presence no longer. She saw him but once more, and then he was on trial for treason, a few weeks subsequently to the audience granted him. Two rioters, out of many who had been disturbing the services at Holyrood Chapel, were imprisoned and Knox to save them, wrote letters to all the leaders of his party, in order to assemble a crowd that would terrify the magistrates into an acquittal of the rioters. This was a treasonable infraction of an express law recently passed, but the reformer was pronounced innocent by the Protestant majority of the royal council. Such were the winds that frequently ruffled the serenity of Mary's life during the two years of lull that preceded her stormier days. She spent this time in journeying through the western and southern parts of Scotland and making a second progress through the wilder north. Her ordinary life was varied by the duties of her office and every study and amusement that could adorn her gifts. Rising before light in the morning, her first hours were given to her privy council, before whose august members she sat, needlework in hand, giving and receiving advice. She was a great lover of history and the classics, in the reading of which, especially the works of Livy, she passed an hour or two each day after dinner. For the study of geography and astronomy, she had the advantage of the first globes ever introduced into Scotland. End of section 28 Recording by Stacy Cologne, Fort Worth, Texas.